Money FM 89.3, the best of prime time. Thanks for joining us on Primetime. I'm Bharati Jagdish. Now, the busiest diplomatic season of the year at the United Nations headquarters in New York is upon us. This year's 77th General Assembly meeting of world leaders convenes under the shadow of Europe's first major war since World War II. At the top of the agenda for many, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has told world leaders at the conference that Russia deserves just punishment for crimes against his country. Well, Dr. Samir Puri is author of a new book. It's called Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. So he is well equipped to join us today to discuss where all of this is going. Hi, Samir. Hi, Bharati. Good to join you. Good to have you on the show, finally, Samir. You are known as an authority on Russia and Ukraine and the current conflict that is going on. So let's talk about the latest. Zelensky's comments came on the same day that Russian President Vladimir Putin called up 300,000 military reservists for duty. This is a move that even prompted protests on the streets of Russia. There's also been a threat to use nuclear weapons. How are you reading all of this? It's amazing, isn't it, that everything has come all in one go. But on Putin's announcement in particular, there's a couple of things to bear in mind. Firstly, the Russian military has run into real difficulty in Ukraine. And something I think that people perhaps aren't appreciating is that probably the same Russian soldiers that invaded on 24th February are still at the front lines today. So one of Putin's main goals with this call-up of the reservists is actually probably to be able to rotate those forces out so they can have a break. But I think as well, the the saber-rattling with the nuclear weapons, it's come at the same time as Zelensky has addressed the UN General Assembly. And it's just a big reminder to the whole world. Remember, Putin isn't in New York at the UNGA General Assembly meeting. Of course he isn't. So this is probably his way of sending a message to everyone sitting in New York. Right, for sure. And the thing is, you know, I'm sure you have an insight on this already. We have been asking ever since the war began, what is Putin's end game here? Ah, well, only one person knows the answer to that question, <laughs> and that's the man himself. But as best as we can discern, he announced this invasion back in, in February to ostensibly, he called, liberate the eastern Donbass region. But then he went and invaded an entirely different part of Ukraine, which is Kiev, Kharkiv, and other places like this, and Kherson. So I think his initial goal was to basically regime change, to depose Zelensky. And in fact, he, I think, originally wanted to, in Zelensky's place, put in a man called Viktor Nedvedchuk, who's in the news this week as well, because he's just been returned to Russia in a prisoner swap. But to round off the answer to, to your question is that his goal is now shifted, I think, to occupying as much of Ukraine as he possibly can, the east and the south. I would sum it up in one word. I think Putin's only realistic outcome from this war is to partition Ukraine, somehow divide it into two pieces. How successful do you think he'll be here at this stage, looking at things at this stage? You know, if I was a betting man, I'd still keep my, my money in my wallet. I think that would be quite alarming to anyone who works in, in you know, energy trading because it's such an unpredictable situation. Mm. The bottom line is we don't know. And the thing to keep in mind is that the one certainty is the winter will set in. I worked in Ukraine in the first conflict, and I remember the winter. Uh, it's sort of minus 27 degrees Celsius. It's at, it's, it, if we're sitting in Singapore... It is the exact opposite to what we're sitting here and experiencing. So when that winter sets in, we'll have to wait and see the state of the battlefield by that stage.
Here's the thing. Russia is reportedly making more money off oil and gas than before the war. The impact of Western sanctions has been offset by surging global energy prices and, of course, increased sales to countries like China and India. Sanctions mostly appear to be causing pain for ordinary people in other countries. Some have said that the sanctions will start to work soon. But what do you think? So this is something I think we get a really interesting perspective on sitting in Asia. Because it feels very different if you're sitting in the USA or in Western Europe, uh, where I think there's a sort of a rhetoric, the whole world is behind the idea of isolating Russia. Well, you know, when you're in Asia, you realize, of course, the whole world might be condemning Russia and all the deaths that they're ensuing. But just think about the countries that are still trading with, with Russia, India, China, even Indonesia is considering purchasing oil uh, and gas from from Russia. This is a sizable percentage of the world's population. And just like any war, I think there are people on the other side of the world who maybe aren't as moved by the cause. They don't find it as, as immediately affecting their region. Uh, but I think the bottom line is this, is that the, the Western world has successfully cut off the Russians from access to critical capital markets, critical consumer markets, business markets. But the West does not speak for the whole world. And, you know, we're just about two months ahead of the G20 summit, which will take place really close to us in Indonesia. And the G20 arguably is a bit more of a, re- a I think, important uh, group of countries than the G7. The G7 is still vastly important. The G7 has condemned Russia and sanctioned Russia unanimously, including Japan, Germany, everybody else. But when you think of the G20, then you see the splits and then you see how Russia's economy has managed to remain afloat during the last seven months. Okay, so the sanctions won't work. I think the sanctions won't work to compel Russia to stop. And I personally, and I've differed with you know respected colleagues and, and experts. You know, I'm not saying that I'm right and they're wrong, but there was, I think, a strong sense back in February that the sanctions were so vast, cutting Russia off the SWIFT banking system. This is likely to compel Putin to have to change course, maybe collapse the Russian economy outright. Well, seven months later, that has not been the case. And all it's done is it's sped up the reorientation of Russia's economy from a sort of Europe westward facing economy to one that is obviously really dependent on Asia, Asian markets and Asian relationships. And and also, I should also point out Iran and and Turkey and countries like this uh, who have not entirely shunned uh, the Russian economy either. So I don't think the sanctions will work in compelling Russia to stop. I don't think the sanctions will collapse the Russian economy entirely. But they have, of course, made... Uh, Russia's economy, you know, they've cut Russia off in the West to a greater extent than at any time since the Cold War. So that's 31 years, and that's pretty important, I think. Mm. So are we truly now seeing the rise of a new world order where even Asian countries are aligning themselves or are open to aligning themselves with Russia? Not all Asian countries, of course, but we did mention China and India earlier. So, Yeah, well, it's interesting, Bharati, because in some respects, then, that the India, India, for example, is condemning the invasion. Modi said that this is not a time for war. But at the same time, India is buying Russia's arms and its energy. So there's a bit of saying one thing and doing another. I actually think Asian countries, if push came to shove, would probably back a peace settlement or a peace negotiation between Ukraine and Russia. I don't think Asian countries want this war to take place. I don't think they want to support Russia in its murder of so many Ukrainian civilians and killing of so many Ukrainian soldiers. And remember, We must always remember that Ukraine is is an unprovoked invasion and Ukraine is really suffering badly. But in in the sense of the new world order you mentioned, I would summarize it as this. Countries around the world are more confident, self-confident, 
to make their own minds up about situations rather than being told what to, to think by, by Western countries. And if you think about the grand sweep of history, that's really quite different to not only parts of the Cold War, but also obviously the imperial era before that, when Western countries are really, they controlled so much of what happens around the world. We're in a transition phase moving away from that, and the diversity of reactions to the Russia-Ukraine war we're seeing around the world. They leave some people in the West scratching their heads, but to me this is really, I think, marking that transition away from a totally Western-dominated world. Samir, your book is called Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. What is the road to the end of the war here? <laughs> right. Well, so that is, I, I leave the reader hang up. See, I don't say there's any clear predictions. And I, as I say in the mm. book, that readers uh, will see a different war to the one that I as a writer saw, because even in the month or a month and a half since I finished writing, things have changed. Um, honestly, we can't predict it. Because there are still many people, especially in the US and the UK, who are supporting the policy of arming Ukraine, who are saying that Russia's army is on the verge of collapse. On the other hand, uh, with the possibilities if Russia doesn't collapse on the battlefield and winter sets in, as I mentioned, mm. that there might be a stalemate that carries this whole situation into 2023 as an active conflict. And then you may see a fresh round of fighting. You may also see a fresh attempt at negotiation whether it's Turkey or other countries trying to act as mediators. But I'm just giving you a range of possibilities because we still don't know. My personal guess, it's pessimistic, unfortunately, for Ukraine, is I sadly think that it will be hard to kick Russia out of every inch of Ukrainian territory. And as I said, some kind of division, even if it's 10 or 15% of the country, might be the situation we enter 2023 facing. Mm. Well, this is related, but it's even larger than the Russia-Ukraine war. Climate change, that is likely to dominate speeches and discussions as well. At a time when the world's dependence on coal is unfortunately increasing because of the Russia-Ukraine war. Where do you see this going in terms of discussions at the UNGA, at the UNGA? Okay, so I watched Antonio Guterres' speech at the UN General Assembly and I have to say, he, he, he was a man who looked like he was about to burst in tears at a few mm. moments at the state of the world. And I'm not sort of making light of this, but mm. what, a, what a difficult job it is to be UN Secretary General in 2022, because your permanent five members, you know, they're at loggerheads with each other. They're, and it's almost, you know, sort of unhealable as a division, which means the Security Council is, is sort of kaput as a, a mechanism for, for you know, ordering global change. Um, the UN does a lot of good work on topic-specific things, and you know, things like climate change. Uh, I think the debate around energy has, has been really affected, and future energy sourcing has been affected by this war. Because as you saw with Germany, if you become reliant on the fossil fuels and the natural energy that is, is sort of supplied from Russia, but at the same time you try to step away from nuclear power, you're now facing uh, a sort of a reassessment of that and saying, well, should we have we actually invested in nuclear power more. Japan is facing something similar as well. They're, they've also promised to phase out the purchase of Russian coal. And as we all know, Fukushima, the disaster just about 10 years ago with their nuclear reactor, that big tragedy, uh, that affected uh, the debate in one direction. And now you'll have to have a, 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 a sort of a, a reconciling between whether your renewable sources of energy can generate enough to meet your country's needs or whether nuclear is an unavoidable option but I think actually from friends of mine who work in the nuclear sector, uh, investment in new nuclear power stations globally is, is certainly a sort of a 
a, I wouldn't say a boom industry, that sounds like I'm making a pun, but it's a rising sort of uh, trend in terms of investing uh, in nuclear power sourcing, probably for, and it'll probably be hastened for these reasons. The thing is, European Union energy ministers will attempt to approve new block-wide measures to pull down soaring gas and power prices at an emergency summit that's expected on September 30th. This is after Brussels announces proposals this week. What exactly should we be looking out for in this regard? I suppose probably the similar thing we look out for with anything to the European Union is whether there's unity amongst their member states. And one of the stories that's emerged this year has been uh, alongside the Russian invasion of Ukraine is, is Hungary. And Viktor Orban, yeah. uh, his victory in, in hung- Hungary's elections and his, I think, quite stubborn stance on moving with the bloc. So I think as ever with the European Union, we should be keeping our eyes open around uh, sort of the consensus, the presence or absence of consensus. But I think we should also be looking at the, uh, you know, the fact that there is huge domestic pressure in, in all European countries because of that reliance on, on Russian gas. I would also point out that the reliance on Russian gas and oil has been uneven across the EU bloc. And I was quite surprised to see like, a little bar graph on, you know, compiled in a, in a newspaper a few months ago showed that the Netherlands of all countries, which is, as we know, much smaller than France and Germany, were sort of proportionately purchasing quite historically in recent years a very high percentage of its energy was coming from Russia. So I think you'll find different countries have got different size problems in terms of trying to diversify away from Russia. But let's, let's just remember that Russia is still currently making money from European purchases of its energy. So there'll also be, I think, something else to look out for is, is the extent to which there is a, you know, a realistic uh, push to speed up the move away from the purchasing of Russian uh, energy. Because UNGA has also shown that European statesmen like Schultz and Macron, are, they really are bought into the idea of stopping Russia. Just very quickly on this, Schultz accused Russia of sheer imperialism. Mm. Macron denounced Russia as returning to the age of imperialism and colonies. So, you know, there's rhetoric there. So let's also see whether the rhetoric is matched with taking those painful financial and economic steps to, to you know, not buy Russian energy products. What should we in this part of the world be bracing for as all of this continues? Well, it's hard to say because obviously the conflict most directly affects Europe. We should certainly be looking, stepping aside from energy to the return of uh, a good supply of food exports from Ukraine. Um, Just on the battlefield, this is something I think this makes intuitive sense, is how much of Ukraine's coastline Ukraine controls. So we should, I think, be very interested in whether Ukraine actually manages to retake ports like Berdyansk. I think Mariupol is probably beyond its gift to retake. Of course, Kherson, not on the coast, but near the south. That, of course, is going to be very important to Ukraine's ability in the, in the long run, in the medium term, rather, and long run, of course, to export its, its energy, uh, its, uh, its grain. Uh, but just in terms of the energy, uh, we're obviously looking for the, the stabilization and the volatility of the markets. And I just don't think there's anything that's going to stabilize uh, these markets until there's some kind of resolution to this this conflict. And going back to your, your sort of first point, mm. um, with the mobilization order and Vladimir Putin doubling down this week on his war, there isn't really an end in sight to the conflict. It's just as you think the Russians could collapse, Putin puts even more of his poker chips onto the table. And just for, for all of us, you know, in, in this part of the world, I think it means that the volatility and the divisions that have uh, sort of come forth from this, this war are unlikely to, to, to end any time soon.
All right. Thank you very much for that, Samir. Dr. Samir Puri, author of a new book, Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. Thanks for joining us on Primetime. Let's hope they find the road out of the war soon. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.